is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Go Big or Go Bro Camp. Hey, Robert, how you doing? <laughs> Swimmingly, Allison, how are you? In this week's episode, we're joined by Motley Fool contributor Matt Frankel to talk about the rise of the Robin Hood trader. All that and more on this week's episode. So, bro, what's up? Well, on this show, Allison, I have mentioned several times probably that my favorite investing book of all time is Stocks for the Long Run by Professor Jeremy Siegel, a professor at the Wharton Business School. Uh, it's a great book in terms of emphasizing the long-term benefit of stocks, how they outperform bonds and cash, but it's also got a lot of really interesting history, history of the Fed, history of the Great Depression. So all around, great book. So I was excited to see Professor Siegel as a guest on a podcast that I listen to regularly. It's the Masters in Business podcast with host Bear Ritholtz. And it was interesting because I think, I think Siegel explained something that is a key difference between the Great Recession of 2007-2009 and what's going on now. You may remember, of course, the Fed did a lot back then in 2007-2009. We were all worried about inflation taking off with all the stimulus, but it didn't happen. Siegel makes the point that all the stimulus that happened in 2007-2009 went to the banks, and then the banks held on to it. They didn't lend it out. They kept it in reserve because they were all worried about themselves going under. It didn't actually make it into people's pockets. This time is different. We talked about it in the last episode, how the savings rate has jumped to 33%, and how banks have noticed this 20, 30, 40% increase in the balances and bank accounts. The stimulus is making it into people's pockets. And Siegel thinks that's going to make this recovery look very different. First of all, he thinks that's why the stock market has recovered. It's because at some point, the stock market recognizes that things are going to go back to normal and people are going to have all this money to spend and it's going to be very stimulative. So he predicts basically three things they're going to happen because of this. At least I boil it down to three things. And number one, the bull market in bonds is over, according to Jeremy Siegel. So back in the early 80s, the 10-year treasury hit almost 16%, and it has gradually gone down to where in March it was 0.5%. When interest rates go down, bond prices go up. To that point, if you look over the last 40 years, bonds have actually returned about the same as stocks. He says it's over. He says that that point where we hit in March at 0.5% on the 10-year treasury, not only is that the low for this cycle, that's the low of our lifetimes. We're not going to see 10-year treasury hit that low again. They're going to go up 2 3 4%, maybe, probably closer to 3%, he thinks. That means bond prices are going to go down. So in other words, everyone's inv- people invest in bonds for safety. They want to secure that money, but actually it's not going to be so secure. The takeaway for me is for money you want to keep absolutely safe, at least in the short term, cash is your better bet. The second point that Siegel brought up is that inflation will return this time. We didn't see inflation after the Great Recession. This time we will. Nothing crazy, like 3 4 5%, but we haven't seen that in decades. So people are probably going to freak out a little bit about it. And for the first time ever, he's recommending that people have a little bit of gold in their portfolios as an inflation hedge. It's not something that I personally recommend, but when I hear someone like him recommend it, as well as Ray Dalio of uh, Bridgewater, one of the more successful um, hedge funds in history, it kind of makes me want to take another look at gold. So it's something that I probably will consider. Um, And it's another reason why bonds are not going to be good, because if you have a bond that's paying 1% or 2%, but inflation is 3%, 4%, or 5%, you're losing purchasing power. And then the third point 
is basically he still believes in stocks for the long run. And that's not surprising. He's kind of known as a perma bull. That's not necessarily true. He actually became somewhat bearish in March of 2000, right, as technology stocks were peaking. So he does have times pointing out where stocks are, at least certain types of stocks are overvalued. But especially when you compare stocks to bonds and cash, it just doesn't make sense to have an overweight in anything really than having most of your money in stocks. In fact, he says the classic balanced portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, that really nowadays should be 75% stocks, 25% bonds. He told CNBC earlier this year, you should tilt them towards dividend paying stocks. Um, it's interesting for me because in the RYR model portfolios, rural retirement, the service that I run at The Motley Fool, for retirees, we do recommend 60% stocks, 40% bonds. I think it is time we take a look at that. But it's also important to point out that even Jeremy Siegel thinks you should have some money out of the stock market. In this bland model portfolio, he says 25%. I'm sure he would recommend even less for more younger, aggressive investors. But I think it's notable that even someone like Jeremy Siegel thinks some people have should have a little bit of money on the side. And that, Allison, is what's up. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other has to say. Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day. Alexander Kearns was a 20-year-old student at the University of Nebraska. He was home from college and living with his parents in Illinois when he logged into his Robinhood account and discovered that a trade he made went sideways, and he now owed $750,000. While it's still not clear whether he actually owed $750,000, it is very clear that he didn't understand what he was doing and was in over his head. He committed suicide as a result. And in his note to his parents, he wrote, how was a 20-year-old with no income able to get assigned almost a million dollars worth of leverage? Alexander is one of millions of people who recently found time on their hands amidst the pandemic and decided to take up day trading. So today, we're joined by Motley Fool contributing analyst Matt Frankel to talk about the rise of the so-called Robin Hood trader. Matt, thanks for joining us. Okay, good to be here. This is such an important topic for new investors especially to, to learn about, so I'm excited for this. Yeah, well, before we get into it, how about we teach our listeners a little bit about who you are, um, where are you coming to us from? Sure. Well, I am in South Carolina physically. I've been writing for The Motley Fool for about 10 years now in one capacity or another. I specialize mainly in personal finance. I'm a certified financial planner, but I also cover real estate and banking as my two areas of specialty. And I kind of, I write across all the full properties, the Ascent Million Acres, our new real estate site, um, and, and a lot of our premium services. So I'm kind of in you know, many hats at The Motley Fool. Yeah, yeah. The Motley Fool has many hats. So thanks for helping us out on all those different fronts. Let's start by, uh, let's start with the basics. So can you explain day trading? Because here at The Motley Fool, we focus on long-term investing. And I definitely didn't know much about day trading until I had been, until I had been at The Fool for a while. So what is it? Well, at, at its core, day trading means moving in and out of stock positions during an individual trading day. But we can kind of expand that term to, to include any type of short-term trading, which is really what's going on today. It's not I know a lot of uh, the so-called Robinhood traders, and they're not necessarily pure day traders in that they're moving in and out of positions every, by minute by minute, but you know, holding onto an, an airline stock for two days or something like that, which has historically been called swing trading when you, when you try to profit off small price movements. So day trading at its core is moving in and out intraday, but 
we can kind of expand that to any type of short-term trading. Yeah. And at The Fool, we tend to invest in a company because we believe in it for the long term. Uh, and so that's why we use the term invest. Uh, whereas with day trading, I feel like it's more, you, you don't necessarily care about the company that's attached to the chart. In some sense, you're just looking for little blips on the screen. Um, when I think of day trading, I think of someone looking at tons of tons of charts and candlestick charts and, oh, I saw this indicator, so I bought. And what does it matter what the ticker is? Right. And to, to me, that's like the modern day version of, of getting your palm read is looking at the charts and things like that. Um, but it, it's you're right in the sense that it, day trading is more of a price-centric form of buying stocks, meaning I'm buying you know, American Airlines because I think it's going to be worth more next week, not because I think it's a good business. Or I'm buying stock of you know XYZ bankrupt company because I think it's it's you know appealing at pennies on the dollar, um, as opposed to looking anything into the the merits of the business itself. Yeah, there's a lot of comparison right now with um, so many people getting into trading, investing, day trading. Uh, that they're saying it's a lot like the '90s all over again. So I was I was around in the '90s, but I was not necessarily investing or doing anything adulting. But uh, now I'm going to make it sound like you guys are a lot older than me. But uh, I mean, I don't know. Whatever. What was it like in the '90s, Grandpa? <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> Uh, well, I will say this, right? I think the thing about the 90s and, and the 90s when I first became interested in personal finance, it's when I started first owning my own individual stocks and it's when I joined The Motley Fool. It's when The Motley Fool took off. So the thing about the 90s was there was this new technology called uh, the internet that allowed people to buy stocks on their own without calling a broker. Commission prices came down, so it made day trading more uh, efficient and it made it cheaper. Um, and you had a situation where stocks just kept going up. So anyone could day trade and look smart. And I think you have some of that going on now, right? One of the things that is fueling this is that Robinhood eliminated commissions and then plenty of other firms followed suit. So you don't have to pay $10 or $15 to get in and $10 to $15 to get out. It's free. Plus, a lot of these people have just started since the market bottomed in March. And it has been easier to make money over the last two months or so. Right. So Mark Mark Cuban also had something to say about this recently where he compared it to the dot-com bubble. And he, he was definitely there for that. I, I personally wasn't. I was in high school in the late 1990s. Um, I think I bought my first stock in 2003. But there's there is a lot of kind of parallels between what's going on now and then. The, the low commissions were the kind of gateway in the 90s towards uh, being able to day trade. Um there were also fewer regulations um, restricting day trading. Right now, you have what's called the pattern day trader rule, which um, which really limits uh, low low balance accounts in their ability to day trade. Uh, if you have under twenty five thousand dollars, there's a lot of restrictions on what you can and cannot do in, in short term trading right now. So that didn't exist in the '90s. So it was kind of the wild west in terms of day trading, especially the online brokerages, low commissions, things like that. So there. It's it's looks like it might be the late '90s all over again in terms of trading and in in the new new innovations that we've seen in the industry. Yeah, well, in general, how did it turn out for people in the '90s, bro? I think you did some research generally also into how successful people are with day trading. 
Right. So, I mean, when you look back at the 90s, it actually didn't work out so well for a lot of people because one of the, some of the stocks that were most frequently day traded were technology stocks, dot-com stocks, and many of those suffered significantly starting generally around March of 2000, and many of those companies went out of business. Um, but even as I was preparing for this episode, I thought, you know, we at The Motley Fool have been saying you shouldn't day trade since I've been at The Fool for more than 20 years. And I thought, like, well, what's the evidence of that? Like, is there evidence that establishes why it doesn't work? So I came up with actually five ways that basically day traders have the odds stacked against them. Uh, and very quickly, number one is that uh, just the odds are not as much as your favor, this, the more you shrink down your time frame. So I've mentioned on the show before that if you, get, you look at U.S. large cap stocks, five-year holding periods, you make money 88% of the time, 10-year periods, 94% of the time, 20-year periods, you always make money, historically speaking. If you're only holding a stock for a day, what's the historical odds you'll make money? Well, a company called Crestmont Research actually looked at this from 1950 to 2019. Stocks go up about 54% of the time from the day-to-day basis. So it's just a little more than a coin flip. And it's pretty consistent from decade to decade to decade. The worst decade was the 70s. You made money 51% of the time. Best decade was actually this last decade. You made money 54% of the time. So you're kind of just flipping a coin. The second thing is that if you are doing what Matt said is the pure day trading, that is you're only doing it, holding it during the day, usually when the market is open, you're missing out on the after hours market. And Bespoke Investment Group actually looked at this since 1993, which is when the SPIDER was launched, the SPY ETF, and looked at what returns you had if you just hold, held it while the uh, market was open from 9.30 to 4, at least here on the east, on Eastern, as opposed to if you bought it right as the market closed and sold it right as the market opened. Since 1993, if you just held it overnight, you would have made, and I got to look for my notes here, 570% total return. If you only owned it while the market was open, you made 3%. 99% of the returns of the S&P 500 happen after the markets close because that's when mar- market when companies release their press releases, they release their earnings, economic reports come out, things happen in Europe and Asia that affect the market. So if all you're doing is trading during the day, you might be missing out on some of the biggest returns. Uh, there are several studies that have looked at day trading. Every single one of them has demonstrated that it doesn't work. Some of these are a little older. Some of them are from other countries. But the most recent one that got a lot of attention was from Brazil. Um, it looked at day trading over a couple of years in the mid 2000 from 2013 to 2015, found that 97% of all individuals who tried to day trade for more than 300 days lost money. Only 1.1% earn more than the Brazilian minimum wage. Uh, and every other study you look at finds the same result. And then the final thing, or a couple of final things, is just higher taxes. Right? One of the reasons why you would hold on to a stock for long term is you get long term capital gains if you hold on to it for a stock in a day. Most people listening to this, they're going to pay a 15% tax rate on long term capital gains. If instead you own it for short term, you're going to pay 22%, 24%. 32% up to 37%. So you're giving away a lot of your gains in taxes. And then finally, a big part of the stock market's return, anywhere from 20 to 40% of it over the long term, is due to dividends. To get a dividend, you have to own a stock on one certain day, usually four times during the year. But if you're day trading in and out, you're not going to get those dividends. 
No, those are actually the the great great explanations of why day trading is bad. Um, there's there's specific reasons why platforms like Robinhood kind of encourage you know uneducated traders to really make bad moves like that. But those are the that's a great overview of why day trading is not in your favor. Yeah, and like just like I don't want to make it sound like we're attacking Robinhood. Like Robinhood is a tool. And I don't know enough about it to say that they're a horrible tool, but they seem like, you know, a tool that you can use to invest or it's a tool you can use to day trade, which we would argue is not the smartest move, I guess. Um, should we? Should we be bashing Robinhood? I don't know. Should we? Well, I, just looking at the trading volume on most discount brokers since they've eliminated commissions, all of them have gone up. So it's it isn't just people on Robinhood who have increased their trading volume and are and are basically doing more trading rather than just buying a stock and holding on to it for three, five, ten years. Right. When I published an article about the Mark Cuban comments about how this is like the dot com bubble, I got a lot of pushback on how we're always bashing Robinhood investors. And there's a big distinction here because we're not bashing Robinhood investors; it's traders that that we we have an issue with. If if someone wants to go on Robinhood. And buy, you know, a share of Apple and hold it for the next fifty years. There, there's nothing wrong with that. That's it's a great vehicle to do that. If you want to buy, uh, Robinhood allows fractional shares. So if you wanted to say have, invest a hundred dollars in Amazon.com, which wouldn't be practical with any other with most other brokers, um, that's a you know that's a great use of Robinhood. The problem is uh, there's a lot of features of Robinhood that kind of encourage short term trading. I'll give you just a couple of examples real quick. Um, one, it's Robinhood's platform is very, very lacking in educational resources when compared to, say, a TD Ameritrade, an E-Trade, or a Schwab. Um, they're, they're designed as a no-frills trading platform, whereas if you log on to, say, a TD Ameritrade, you could spend entire days reading through their educational resources on you know, the dangers of option investing, um, you know, how to properly set up a covered call strategy or or the, how margin works and things like that. You could spend a whole day reading those. Um, whereas in Robinhood, it's very, very minimal. Um, they're actually, they're the only platform that I know of anyway, that charges zero commissions on options trading, which is where a lot of traders find themselves getting into trouble, you know, using options when they don't really understand. Um, they have some of the cheapest margin rates. Um, the first, If you have a premium membership with Robinhood, which is I think $5 a month, the first $1,000 of margin is free, interest-free. And above that, I think it's a 5% margin rate, which is about the cheapest you're going to find. And finally, there's a lack of customer support. where um, Customer support is pretty much an automated chat bot and um, a very slow email process from what I hear. There's not even a published phone, customer service phone number on Robinhood's website if you want to call and get some assistance from a person. And so it goes those, down pretty regularly. Like you see on Twitter when Robinhood goes down and people are mad that they couldn't close their close their um, options or whatever that they wanted to do. Right. And there's not even anybody you can call in that situation. Yeah. So it, it, and not to mention there's cryptocurrency trading available on the platform, which is, you know. What could go wrong there? Right. It's That's clearly a, a intended toward the younger crowd that wants to make money quickly, if you ask me. Uh, but, but there's a lot of – all those things kind of really – you know, I don't want to say encourage short-term trading, but it definitely facilitates it. I think I do also agree that to, to a certain degree, Robinhood has um, facilitated some people getting into, into investing, which is a good thing. And I realized this recently when my millennial daughter 
um, texted me a screenshot of her Robinhood account, which I wasn't even aware of. And, uh, and she said, is this, is this all, these stocks look good? I'm, I'm getting into Robinhood. And I love the idea that a lot of these people are trading for the first time. And even if they try day trading, they're going to learn very quickly that it doesn't work. And learning that now when they don't have a lot of money is a good idea. Um, so I think Robinhood deserves some credit for that, getting people into investing. But like Matt said, the tools are not there. And obviously, a lot of the information that um, the, the, the fellow you mentioned earlier in the show the disclosures weren't there. The education wasn't there to learn. Like really in the end, he, he actually probably didn't owe that much money, but it wasn't clear. And I could imagine it was just very, very shocking. All right. So we've talked about sort of Robin Hood and the rise of zero fee trading platforms. I think another reason why we're kind of seeing this 90s all over again is the pandemic and quarantine means that people have time on their hands. And in some cases, they oddly have more money. We talked about how the savings rate is up in America. I don't know if we talked about it last week. I don't know. We talked time again, time is last week. So at some point you talked about it. Um, but also people apparently are more likely, like people are taking their stimulus money and investing it. So um, CNBC cited research from Invest Yodley that found that people earning between 35000 and 75% annually increased their stock trading by 90% more than the prior week after receiving their stimulus check. So yes, people have some extra time on their hands and some extra money. And so it seems like that's another factor that's causing people to start investing more and with the market dropping. Yeah, for sure. A lot of people definitely have time and money on their hands. Um, you mentioned the savings rates. Uh, banks reported over $860 billion of inflows in April alone. So this is not just stimulus checks that people are, are you know, have money to spare. Um, I mean, all the stimulus checks issued don't add up to $800, million, $800 billion. Yeah. So um, it's the enhanced unemployment benefits. I read that in some industries, people are making double what they are, they would have um, – from working from just unemployment benefits right now. Um, like the hospitality industry in particular, is a yeah. big one that, where they're getting extra money. Um, so, so people do have a lot of money and a lot of time and there's really nothing to fulfill the, the, the urge to gamble, I guess you would say. Yeah. So bro, do you feel like your daughter opened up a Robin hood account? Because, uh, why do you think she did it? Because I also hear that while well, the stock market, like, stock prices were too high, but now we have a market drop. So buy low. And now is my opportunity to do it. But wh why do you think your daughter did it? So uh, talking to her, her friends are doing it. So she learned about it from her friends. Now she's heard me talk about money over and over again. Ooh, for not yeah. cool. <laughs> okay, so, but this is the great thing. So she was over for Father's Day. So she's going to be 29 in a couple of weeks. And she's telling me how much she is loving reading The Millionaire Next Door, which I gave to her years ago, and she finally picked up. So I don't know if the interest in money came first, and then came Robin Hood, or Robin Hood came first, and then she got interested in money. But it is now all sort of coming home for her, this interest in money and this idea of being financially independent and calculating where she is like relative to other people her age. It's all wonderful. But it did start with other people talking about Robin Hood and getting excited about it. And I think part of it is that it's on the phone. You can do it anywhere. If you're sitting on the Metro, she takes the Metro all the time and you have nothing to do, you can pull up your Robin Hood account and see how your stocks are doing. All right, Matt, you touched on something earlier that I want to dig 
deeper into. And that's the idea that uh, one of the other reasons why day trading is having such a resurgence is because people miss stuff to bet on. Um, New York Times, for example, did a recent article, Trading Sports Books for Brokerages, Board Betters Wager on Stocks. And it's all about these guys who used to gamble on sports. And then they're like, oh, I don't have sports anymore. I guess I'll gamble on stocks now. Yeah, well, it's not just sports gambling. Remember, casinos have been closed as well. Oh, yeah, that too. Um, so, well, so now that we're seeing casinos open back up, we're seeing sports are supposedly going to start next month in some cases. I think the baseball season they're going to restart next month. Hopefully, that'll that'll you know eliminate some of the trouble. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's not just the gamblers themselves. It's the it's the you know the the prolific gamblers who are really romanticizing day trading as kind of a substitute. Um, we've mentioned Dave Portnoy. I, I'm sure you and Bro have heard of Dave Portnoy. He's oh, yeah. amazing. <laughs> have energy. you followed his trading system yet? I have not followed his trading system, but I have. So I did watch a video of him because basically, if I understand this, he streams like the last hour before the market closes, right? And he's basically at his computer and he's gabbing. Over half a million people watch him every day. Um, that's scary. I know, right? Well, that's, yeah, I guess that's the point. And so. Uh, so what he did that day is he yelled a lot at Ron and Sana because I think maybe Ron and Sana threw him some shade on CNBC. So he was yelling a lot and every other word is an F-bomb. Uh, but he basically decided that he was it was so easy to invest that he got a bag of Scrabble tiles and he's like, I'm just going to pull out Scrabble tiles. And if it's a ticker with enough trading volume, I'm just going to buy it. And so that's what he did. He kept pulling. Apparently, it's harder than you'd think to actually form tickers out of just pulling tiles out of like that was the hard part. And then once he once he pulled out Macy's, so I think he invested one hundred fifty thousand. Invest he traded one hundred fifty thousand on Macy's um, because that's what he pulled out of the bag. He also pulled out the ticker for Raytheon, um, and that's what he did. And he ended the day down one hundred forty two thousand because of a bad trade on Spirit Airlines. But it's just it's it's fascinating. It's enter- I mean, Jason Moser always says it's entertainment. It's entertainment. Um, but at the same time, it's also scary if there are people who are thinking they can take the same amount of risk that this millionaire is, because he's a multimillionaire. Right. And what I was reading is that the entire amount of money that Dave Portnoy has put into the market is something – it's less than 1% of his net worth. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's important to point out that it's – if in speculating on stocks, it's not inherently bad if you do it with money you're prepared to lose. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if I was going to take $100 to the casino to play blackjack – and instead want to make some speculative bets on stocks, it's really the same thing. As long as I know what I'm doing with that money, it's when people you know, think that there's no way to lose. And when with some things that Dave Portnoy says, um, I'll read you a quote that I read you off the air earlier. Um, Why take profits when every airline goes up 20% every day? Losers take profits. Winners push the chips into the middle. That's where you kind of blur the lines between recreational gambling and dangerous thinking that you can't lose. Nobody who walks into a casino thinks that they're going to win every time they put money into the slot machine. Yeah. And I guess actually we should say some background on him, right? Like he was a founder of Barstool Sports, which is big on sports and betting on sports. And when he didn't have sports, he's smart enough to be like, well, I still need a way to keep my lights on, make money, keep busy, be entertaining. So I'll I'll do this now because it's you know now another business idea for him. Um, was it you who said on Industry Focus that if you talk to these different day traders, they make more money selling their system for day trading than they do actually day trading? Yes, and I don't know, I, and I can't say that in Portnoy's case, just because he definitely does put a lot of money into the market. 
Yeah, but he does. Yeah. It, a, a lot of times when you see these, the, you know, people who've sold a million books on how to how to day trade stocks, they made more money selling those books than they did on actual day trading. I don't want to say a hundred percent of the time, but it, most people who sell a trading system yeah. make more money from selling the trading system itself. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating how, because again, I was watching his video and, and again, you can view it as entertainment or you can view it as something dangerous for people who don't understand the risk involved. Um, but he says stuff that we've said at The Fool before, where it's like, well, Wall Street doesn't want you to know that you can do this yourself. And I'll be like, well, yeah, that's true. Like they don't, they, yeah, they want you to pay them to do it for them. That's true. And I'm like, but no, the answer is not day trading. That's not, no, I'm like, yes, I'm there with you up until you start talking about dropping, you know, $100,000, $150,000 on some Scrabble tiles. Um, so I guess that's what I'm on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Teach to your point, bro. That's great. New people are learning how to, um, learning more about the stock market, but they're, the, they're going to learn the hard way. They're going to get burned. Right. And, I mean, what he's doing is inherently not bad. I mean, well, it, I mean, it, the, those, the points like you were saying, like, you know, what, you don't need to be a wall street insider to make money in stocks. That's true. But I wish there was a Dave Portnoy of investing right now, uh, who is who is you know you know kind of romanticizing the the, the long term investing if that's even possible to do. Um, <laughs> the, the reason most people don't invest the right way is because it's it's not you know exciting and fun and thrilling and I mean a, a, the the stocks I've done best on I've owned for years and years and I don't even check them regularly anymore to be honest with you in a lot of cases. I couldn't tell you the, the share price of Apple, which I've owned for about a decade, um, yeah. because it's it ha, it's not exciting, but it's been, it's been the best contributor to my to my growing wealth over time. I guess you would say. Yeah. So there was this uh, talking point for a while that the reason why the market didn't fall as much as it should have, because we're in a global pandemic, was because Robinhood investors were piling money into the market and bolstering it up. Is that true? I feel like Robinhood investors would still be the smallest percentage of the global investors in the world. They are. So I don't buy that on on the in the context of the broad market. Um, the, the typical Robinhood account has less than $5,000 in it. In many cases, a lot less. But even if all, Robinhood is about 13 million users right now, if all of them had $5,000 in their account, that'd be a total of $65 billion. That is a small, small, small fraction of the trillions of dollars of volume that flows through the stock market every day. So, however, I would buy that in the sense that it's moving some of these cheap stocks. Um, if you look at just some of the, the names on the top list of Robinhood stocks, like GoPro um, is, is a major Robinhood stock, Carnival Cruise Lines, I, I, could, I would absolutely buy that Robinhood traders have had a, a big hand in moving those stocks. But as as far as the entire stock market goes, no, I don't think Robinhood traders had anything to do with the the sharp rise we saw. I think that was just more the market realized that we're avoiding a worst case scenario during the pandemic. Uh, can you explain the Hertz story to me? Because that's kind of a fascinating story too. Speaking of Robinhood investors coming together to do something, there are parts of the Hertz story I can't explain to myself. But <laughs> having said that. Um, if, if you're not familiar, Hertz, the, the car company or a car rental company, went declared bankruptcy. They hit a after they declared bankruptcy, they hit a low of about forty cents a share on May 26, and because of the Robinhood community primarily, um, the, the shares soared by over a thousand percent at one point and hit a high of over five fifty on uh, June 9th. 
this is a bankrupt company. The company specifically hurts itself, warned investors, if you buy our shares, you will likely lose your money. Over 170,000 Robinhood investors now have Hertz shares in their portfolio, which have since dropped to about 145. So it it's a bankrupt company that has no intrinsic value at this point whatsoever, other than the small prayer that they might get some money out of bankruptcy proceedings. Um, it just kind of goes to show you this the herd mentality of Robinhood investors that would put that much into a essentially worthless security just because of it's essentially the greater fool theory that that someone you know a few days from now is going to pay more than I did for this. Uh, there's really no other reason to own those shares. Yeah, and do they does is that a trend? Like, do they like to buy beaten down stocks like Carnival? Like buying a cruise line is a gutsy move right now. Right. Well, I mean, when I look at the top 10, Robinhood's very transparent about the stocks their investors own. That's one thing I can say about them compared to other brokerages. Um, if you And you see other names that are really you – know, the, it's the low share price stocks that their investors tend to focus on. Uh, Ford and GE are the number one and two um, on, on out of theirs. Uh, American Airlines is number three, the beaten down airline stocks. To be fair, some of the stocks that are widely owned by Robinhood investors are – Good long-term investments. Uh, Disney is number four. Um, Apple's among the top ten list. Microsoft is on the list, um, but the majority are these speculative names that you know trade trade in high volumes. They're very volatile lately, and for the most part, have very low share prices. So it's it's easier for investors on Robinhood to buy you know larger quantities of these shares, and in the hopes that they're going to. And it's it's a very common myth among new investors in general, not just the Robinhood crowd. That if I buy low share price stocks, they have the most potential to shoot upward, which is absolutely not the case. Uh, In many cases, these are stocks that are cheap for a reason, and you're more likely to lose money with them than if you buy a high dollar stock like an Apple or Microsoft. Well, I could keep talking about this for a lot longer because I think it's so fascinating. Uh, But how about for you guys? Let's, Let's provide a spoiler to our listeners. Where does this all end? If past is prologue, what what have we learned about where a bunch of people getting into day trading is going to end up? Well, I guess I'll go, I'll go first with that. I, I I think it's going to end badly for a lot of Robinhood traders, but the the silver lining is that these are mostly small accounts. The the one that had you know you know if you see a Robinhood trader that has twenty thousand dollars in their account, that's the exception. Most of these are small traders, so if they can learn these lessons. On small accounts, it's not necessarily the end of the world. I mean, my first investment ever was, I think, a penny stock that lost all my money, but it was for about $200 and it was a good investment to learn. It made me want to learn how to invest correctly. So my hope is that out of this comes some good. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. So my hope is that the Robinhood crowd will um, will take this opportunity to learn how to invest for the long term. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would also say, if, to the extent that this is due to the shutdown and, and lack of sports and lack of other things to bet on, you know, that will change. At some point, life will return to normal and people will have other things to focus on. And my hope is that those people with their accounts then just stop paying attention to them. They remember it two, three, four, five years later and are happy that it's likely gone up at that point, And they've learned that all you have to do is buy some good stocks and leave them alone and you'll do fine. Yeah. I hope it just doesn't burn a lot of people and turn them off from investing entirely. Um, yeah. And I think that's a risk. I think that is certainly a risk. And hopefully uh, 
hopefully they they won't feel that way. And, and the other issue too is that a lot of it, you know, Robinhood accounts are taxable accounts. They're not retirement accounts. And hopefully people will be still be putting most of their money in their 401k, get that employer match, that tax advantage growth, and that will be left alone to grow through the years. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. This has, again, just been such a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you coming on. Of course. I had a great time. Yay. As always, The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here or, or anywhere else for that matter. Do your research. Right? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> That's the show. It's edited day tradily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.